Would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 18? Luke chapter 18. We'll be returning to Luke 18 this week. Luke 18 verses 31 through 34. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated, and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now let's pray and ask God's blessing. Oh, Father and our God, we pray that you would settle our hearts in you this morning and help us to hear your word. Make us responsive to it. Give us tender consciences that hear and obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 22 and 44, as well as in the illusion of chapter 13, verse 33, Uh, There are at least two, maybe three predictions of Jesus' death. This is not the first time that Jesus will speak of his death, uh, of his coming death. And from this point forward, there is marked a a, a change in Luke's gospel. Uh, From this point forward, the the death of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, and eventually the resurrection of Jesus. But his his suffering and his passion week, uh, will 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 take uh, a preeminent position in Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus will begin to explain more and more. Jesus will begin more and more to be conscious of in his public ministry his death and suffering on the cross. Now there are, there are two things that I want us to take from the text this morning. The first of which is simply this: that Jesus prophesies his suffering, death, and resurrection. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now you might say, well, no, he's only recounting what he has already heard from the prophecies of the Old Testament. But let me add to that and explain. There is an Old Testament witness to the sufferings of the Messiah and his death. Zechariah 13, 7, where it says, God will strike the shepherd and his sheep will scatter. Or Isaiah 53, you could read Isaiah 52 toward the latter section of of that chapter, all the way through the end of chapter 53. And I'll tell you, devotionally, it would be wonderful for you to do so, to concentrate upon the Isaiah uh, servant songs of Isaiah 42 and 44 and 45 and 49 and 52 and 53. Uh, there's wonderful devotion there. But in Isaiah 53, 7, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before his shearers, he never said a word. Or Psalm 22:16, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Or Isaiah 50, verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks To those who pulled out my beard, I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. 
or a messianic psalm, Psalm 22, my life is poured out of me like water and all my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up like clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. There are so many passages, so many Old Testament passages that speak prophetically of a suffering Messiah, of a servant who would come who would be one who suffers for the sake of God's people. Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8 says, Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads, saying, Is this the one who relies on God? Then let the Lord save him. Psalm 22, later on in the same chapter, says, They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. The very first verse in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those very words quoted by Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 53, 9 says that his grave would be a rich man's grave. And Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. There are many Old Testament passages that speak explicitly of what Jesus would endure in his suffering and death and resurrection. But Jesus adds to our understanding of the significance of it all and how it will be. Five times he uses the language of of urgency and of, of, of certainty in our passage here this morning. He takes the twelve aside and says to them, and they know the Old Testament texts. They know that that these are messianic texts that would speak of the Messiah and of his suffering. They expected this, but they expected it in a different way. Their expectations surrounded a a deliverance from the Roman occupiers, a, a military leader, one who would experience or perhaps even die for the sake of his people, but in a heroic sense in order for that the people might be liberated from the Roman occupiers. But there is a greater enemy than the Roman occupiers. There is a greater enemy than the Russian uh, Alexander Putin. There are greater enemies than individuals or great governments, the Communist Party of China. The greatest enemy of humanity is sin. The greatest and most lasting curse laid out upon the heads upon it of every human being is sin. That sin will kill you. That sin will ultimately lead to your death. Cancer may be the circumstances or the circumstantial means by which you die, or a car accident, or perhaps being receiving some bad food at a, at a family fellowship lunch, and we don't know, you never know. But, but the reason why we die and the reason why every human being dies is sin. Sin is, sin is what God condemned in the garden. If, if in fact you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in doing so you will die. And he uses a, a, a double negative. You will die, die. He uses a, a double, not a double negative, but a double statement. You will die, and in dying, you will die. You will die, die. They will die spiritually, and we see the separation between Adam and Eve and God, the break, brokenness of their relationship with Him. 
They believe now that they are naked before him. The fellowship with him in the garden is broken. They hide. And they began from that day forward to die. Their flesh was marked and its duration had begun. The great enemy of mankind is sin and that sin leads to death. And Jesus came to put away death. The language of urgency and certainty are here. Will be. Jesus uses this language repeatedly. He takes them aside and he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written throughout the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scorched him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Five times Jesus uses this language. Five times. It must be done. It needs to be done. If it isn't done, there is no hope for humanity. There's also the language here of custody, for he will be delivered over, verse 32 tells us. He will be delivered over. What's the significance of that language? What does that have to do with you and me here this morning? I'll take you to two other passages. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 Peter is proclaiming the the excellence of Christ. He is preaching for vast crowds of people, and he is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a crowd that, that largely had a hand, at least verbally, in putting him to death. And he says this, This man, Jesus of Nazareth, man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, and foreknowledge. Think about that for a moment. God, according to His eternal foreknowledge and His deliberate plan, handed over, delivered over Jesus Christ to the crowds that cried out for His crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not an accident. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not some incident that somehow overtook the plan of God. And somehow God's hands were tied and he eventually was able to bring Jesus back to life. And and, and so he was able to fulfill his plans, but that portion of it was unforeseen. No, that's foolishness. Peter goes on in his sermon, You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. But remember how Jesus got onto the cross. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Romans 8.31, Paul takes up the same cry. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the language, dear friends, of Scripture. That God, the infinite God, God the Father, gave over the Son, delivered over the Son according to His own predetermined counsel and will. No other thing could have been done. It was absolutely necessary that this be done. This was God's will. To hand over the Son. To deliver over the Son to those who had put Him to death to permit the wickedness of mankind in nailing him to the cross, but all according to his 
predetermined counsel, his deliberate plan, and his foreknowledge. He gave him up for us all. God's plan was not confounded or turned aside. Man is still wicked and condemning and putting him to death, but there's there's a divine necessity in, in the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice the roles of both Jews and Gentiles here, and some have accused Luke of making an emphasis of the the Jewish persecution of the Lord Jesus Christ, leading to a certain form of anti-Semitism. But that's nonsense. In fact, here in this passage, in this very passage, Jesus says, as recorded in the words uh, of, of by Luke, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles. The Jews will do it, but the Gentiles will see that the Lord Jesus is nailed to the tree. The second thing that we see in this passage is ultimately to ask this question. The disciples did not understand. We want to see the meaning of these things. What is the meaning of the resurrection, the the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the meaning of these things? The meaning of this, all that Jesus recounts here for him, for us is, is found in a number of different ways. But in verse 34, it says this, But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. The disciples did not understand. When Jesus recounted these things, they didn't understand the significance of what Jesus was saying, and they didn't understand that when Jesus says, He must be handed over to the Gentiles, and then put to death, mistreated, spat upon. They do not understand the significance of these things. Why do they not understand? Because these things were hidden from them. The disciples would understand later on. They would understand his res- after his resurrection. They would understand the necessity of his death for sin. They would understand the necessity of Jesus' death in taking away our guilt. They would understand the significance of his resurrection. They would come to understand that in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his substitutionary atonement, in his offering himself as a covenantal offering for sin, that their sins are taken away and that therefore they are received as righteous in the sight of God because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. And so there is significance in the suffering and death and the resurrection of our Savior. And it summarizes the gospel for all of us. The Apostle Paul began last week as we read that passage together in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. Now he is recounting the gospel, and he is recounting what the gospel is, and the gospel that they themselves believed. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and he goes on to recount his appearances. The summary of the gospel is simply this. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. 
He offered Himself as an atonement for sin. He was laid out upon the cross according to the predetermined counsel and the delivering over of God, the Father, of the Eternal Son. The Son, in offering of Himself, was received of the Father. And God the Father was pleased with the sacrifice of the Son, both of His perfect obedience and of the offering of Himself, His body and His blood on the cross, as an offering for sin. That He Himself has imputed the righteousness of Christ to all those who come to Him in faith, to all the elect of God, such that we are received in the sight of God, righteous, holy, perfected by the blood and the righteousness of our Savior. That's a nutshell of what the gospel is. Jesus is recounting what the gospel is, and the disciples do not completely understand nor comprehend in its fullest sense the gospel. As summarily comprehended in the life, the death, the suffering, and the resurrection of the Savior. And for you, when you share the gospel with your friends, keep it simple. Yes, I believe I've committed sin against God, and the only recourse for my sin is to believe in Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and who offered his life as an atoning sacrifice on the cross, and that because he himself hung there on the tree, his body and his blood and his perfect righteousness were offered as an offering for my sin. And my sin and my guilt are taken away because I believed in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior, my, 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 my Messiah. And through faith, faith, I've received Him as my Savior. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will receive the forgiveness of sins. Does it need to be any more complex than that? That's the Gospel. And Jesus is recounting for His disciples, it is necessary to the very heart of the Gospel, it is very necessary to the essence of what makes the Gospel the Gospel. The Gospel is what I'm about to tell you. The Gospel necessitates that I go up to Jerusalem. It is absolutely Gospel necessary, if we can use that phrase, and connect those two words, that I ascend that Temple Mount, go to suffer, and submit to dying and to the pains of death and of the grave for the space of six days, three days, after which I will be raised by the power of God. That's the gospel. Do you understand the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? I have sinned against God, and my sins against God have offended this holy and righteous God. They have caused a separation between myself and this holy, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, glorious, righteous God. I cannot atone for my sins. I cannot make up for them because I am a sinner in my nature. And even if I think that I have somehow done good things in life, and I have, the Holy Spirit enables even non-Christian, pagan persons, sinners of every stripe and color and creed to do good things. Nevertheless, the good things I have done are tainted by my sinful in- intentions, by my sinful motivations. 
And I have done them for myself. I haven't done them for God. I haven't done them unto his own glory. I've been prideful about them. I'm arrogant about the condition of my soul. I've misjudged. I am not holy and righteous. I am a sinner and I am unrighteous. If you have come to that conclusion, the Holy Spirit of God has enabled you to see that. Do you see that the the disciples could not understand? They did not quite understand and, and it was withheld from them. The meaning of this statement was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things that were said. If you do, then the Holy Spirit is at work in you. If there is conviction of sin, if you recognize that you are a sinner and you cannot atone for your sins, and that God is righteous and just in condemning sin, the Holy Spirit has led you to that understanding. Embrace it and come in faith to Jesus Christ. Believe that he alone in his suffering and righteousness and in his death and resurrection, that there is healing for your soul. There is acceptance before God. There is your acceptance, your holy acceptance, before the eternal God who will judge the living and the dead. There's more here for us as believers too. As we partake of communion and the Lord's Supper in a bit, these things deepen our understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus offered himself as substitution for you and for me, as a covenant sacrifice for helpless sinners. Do you understand that you're a helpless sinner today? Do we understand that? That humbles our understanding and makes us far more willing to do whatever the Lord calls us to do. I am a helpless sinner. I am not just a sinner, but I am a helpless sinner. I am helpless when temptation comes. I cannot but yield to it because I am enslaved to it. I am a helpless sinner in that I cannot in any way change my relationship with God. I cannot draw near to Him unless He draws near to me and His beloved Son. As a helpless sinner, I am completely, utterly, and totally reliant upon God to come near to me, to draw near the Emmanuel, God with us in the Son, the eternal Son of God the Messiah, my Savior. Jesus, when we partake of the Lord's Supper and hold a little tiny vial of wine or grape juice and take up a little bit of bread, these common elements as we partake of them by faith, if we dwell upon this idea, this thought, if our hearts go in faith and affirm and preach to our soul, and our reason takes it down into our affections, Jesus is my substitute. That body and that blood on that cross, that was my covenant sacrifice. I can claim no other nor better sacrifice than that. I can offer nothing more to God but what Jesus has offered. It is sufficient. I am helpless, but He is my powerful Savior. And he has powerfully saved my soul.
There is further for us in this passage uh, an understanding of the righteousness of Christ. His holiness is vindicated in this one fact, that he, though he will be mocked, though he will be handed over to the Gentiles and mistreated and spit upon, though he will be scourged, though they will kill him, on the third day he will rise again. No one rises from the grave. No one. Except God is satisfied with that individual that the penalty of death has been satisfied. You see, my body will rest one day and yours in the grave because of the penalty of sin. But Jesus who died though he bore our penalty, made payment for our sins such that the penalty was paid, the statement of God's judgment of sin, uh, of death, over the sinless Savior could no longer hold him in the grave. His holiness is vindicated. He could not be held under the penalty of death permanently because of his righteousness. If death is the penalty for sin, and if sin is paid for by the sacrifice of Christ, then the penalty of death must be taken away. And it will be for you as well. One day, though your body will disintegrate in the grave, when Christ comes and shout of acclamation in the clouds with all those who are His and who have preceded, He will bring not only us, but He will unite us together with our bodies, and He will raise them from the earth. You see, because the penalty for our sin was paid. Because God's judgment against sin is satisfied in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul gets this, and this is why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, If Christ isn't risen, then your faith is in vain, and you are still in your sins. Let's take that backward. You're no longer enslaved to sin, nor still in your sins. You're freed from the guilt of sin and enslavement to sin and the penalty of sin because your faith is not in vain, but is in Christ Jesus. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're no longer subject to God's wrath and curse and the penalty of eternal death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only our salvation, but also is the source of our great power and equipping in the Christian life. You wonder, well, I don't know what it means, and I don't know how to live the Christian life. I don't know how I can have the power and the ability to live through and endure through suffering and difficulty and strife and still be faithful. I don't know how I can be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and still be a faithful Christian when I'm enduring through grave difficulty. And I do understand and I do understand, I do know what you're, you're saying. Christian life can often be difficult. And we see a greater significance in our suffering and in our struggles and trials. They are not just simply chance happenings, but they are sent by our Savior to teach us to rely upon Him. To lead us to a, 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 a lesser counting upon or, or to, to, to no longer count on the foundation of our flesh, but to invest in our soul. 
Well, this is the power that is at work in you, enabling you to live and me to live despite discouragement and anxiety and fear, struggle and trial and tribulation. Ephesians 1, 17, the Father of all glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. What is the working of the strength of his might? Pardon me. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward those of us who believe? That deserves a, a, a second look. The power the greatness of his power towards us who believe. What is that power? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Do you understand what Paul just said there? The very power by which God, the infinite God who created all things, caused this body which was dead physically in the grave for the space of portions of three days against which a rock had been rolled and sealed and before which men stood in guard. God raised that body, reuniting the soul of Christ with his human body and he stood and he walked out of that tomb. How did he do that? By His almighty and gracious and glorious and eternal power. And Paul's saying that same power animates you and me in the Christian life. I live, you live, by the very power of God to raise Jesus from the dead. That power is already at work in you. When you say, I can't do it. You're not, you're, you're right, you can't. But you're not looking at the power of God. You're not relying upon the power of God that is at work in you to do and, and to will all that God requires of you. We live beneath our station. We live beneath this immensity of power that God is at work within us to do and to make use of and to bring about the fulfilling of all that he commands of us. When you struggle and when you're in the midst of great weakness, remember what he says. It is in your weakness that his might is put on display. It is when you are specifically weak that the power of God is most eminently and perfectly displayed. When you feel that weakness in your flesh, I'm hurting, I, I can't do what I used to do, I, I, I'm, I'm not feeling well, and, and I'm anxious and fearful about my future, remember that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you even now. prayer of Paul is that every believer would understand the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us and in us. That power which is in accordance with the strength with which he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. The very power that reanimated a dead body. The very power that 
united the soul and body of Jesus in his human nature. The very power that lifted the physical body of Jesus from this earth and seated him at the right hand of God. Your good God is at work wielding that same, that very same power in you. It doesn't make you superhuman. It doesn't make you superman or superwoman. But it does make you rely utterly and completely upon God's power to live. To live the Christian life. To be constant in prayer. To be faithful to the Lord. To suppress evil, sinful desires. And it animates and enables us to serve Jesus. You know, this is most extraordinarily understood when we recognize that all that Jesus said as he recounts the gospel and his glorious power seen in his suffering and death and resurrection. This is for ignorant and unfeeling disciples. Disciples understanding none of these things. The meaning of this statement was hidden from them and they didn't comprehend the things that were said. Do you ever feel like sometimes you just... Don't feel an awful lot deeply about God. And that what you believe and know about Christ, you're often stymied by and you struggle because you recognize that your, 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 your affections are so divided and that you don't love the Lord like you want to love the Lord and that you want to love the Lord more and you want to live for God more faithfully. Take comfort in this. These disciples did not understand the significance of Christ and his resurrection, of his death and his suffering. And yet Jesus loved them and gave himself for them. Do you lament sometimes our cold, unfeeling hearts? our distance from the Lord, and the difficulty with which we go about our spiritual devotion. Sometimes worship itself is a struggle. Remember this. This is from J.C. Ryle. If if Christ so loved us before we ever even thought of him, he will surely not cease to love us after we have believed. God, the same God who loved you before you ever loved him, still loves you even to today, if you are truly his child. And nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing will conquer his love. Nothing will take away his love. Nothing, either height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor death itself can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lastly and finally, his resurrection makes possible your own. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, you too will be bodily raised from the dead. And you will ascend, and your soul will be united to your body, and you will be with the Lord forever. These are not insignificant words that Jesus shares with the disciples 
Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scorched him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Because Jesus was raised after three days in the grave, however long it takes before the return of Christ, you too will ascend from the grave. He will take the molecules of your disintegrated body and he will reanimate them with your soul and you will stand before the Lord and you will see him face to face. Now live in that hope and trust in him that the same power wielded in the resurrection of the Savior from the grave is at work in you today. And you will not, even from de- even when death occurs, be separated from that same power of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for the power of Jesus Christ and the immeasurable power of God in our salvation. We thank you, O God, and we bless you. We bless your great name, for you are a glorious and good and merciful and gracious God. Who are we that you should be mindful of us, that you would send forth your Son into this wicked, darkened, wretched world in which we live? O Lord, even though the sun is beautiful in the day, looks glorious and grand on this spring morning, Nevertheless, we live in a world so, so, so covered over by sin, such that everything is dying. There is entropy observed everywhere. Things are breaking down. And even on this day, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of human beings will die. The silver cord will snap. Their soul will ascend to heaven and their bodies no longer animated will rest in the grave. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we too will live. Grant us that hope and keep us in that hope, O God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.